Grammar Girl here. I'm Mignon Fogarty. This week, I have a quick and dirty tip about the difference between reeked and rot, another quick and dirty tip about the word crescendo, and a meaty middle pondering whether it's likely we could ever understand aliens. A reader named Martha wondered about the difference between reeked and rot. Have you wreaked havoc or wrought havoc? First, let's think about havoc. You can wreak devastation or revenge, but most often it seems people in storms are described as wreaking havoc. What is this havoc? Well, originally, someone in the army would cry havoc, literally call out the word havoc, to give soldiers the order to start pillaging and just generally causing chaos. Havoc! It appears, for example, in Shakespeare's play, Julius Caesar. Caesar's spirit shall, with a monarch's voice, cry havoc and let slip the dogs of war. It's not entirely clear, no credible source seems certain of the origin, but the word havoc might come from a Latin word that meant to have or possess, which kind of fits with the idea of soldiers running around grabbing things. Later, according to the Oxford English Dictionary, play havoc and make havoc became phrases, and then even later, work havoc showed up. And the phrases came to have more of a general sense of destruction and chaos, separate from a pillaging army. This matters because while reeked is the past tense of the verb to reek, rot is an archaic past tense of the verb to work, So you can see that if people were talking about working havoc, then they would also logically have said they wrought havoc when they were talking about the past. And, in fact, Oxford Dictionaries says that wrought havoc is actually an acceptable variant of wreaked havoc. And here's a little more about the words reek and wrought. In Old English, reek meant to avenge. But much like the word havoc, it's gotten more tame over time. It now means something more like to inflict or cause something, usually damage or destruction. As for rot, besides being an archaic past tense form of work, in the sense of meaning to shape or to forge, today you're just as likely to hear it being used as an adjective in phrases such as rot iron as you are to hear it being used as a past tense verb. Martha limited her question to reeked and rot, but another common mistake is to say that someone wrecked havoc instead of wreaked havoc. The words may sound a lot alike, but you don't wreck havoc. So remember, you can wreak havoc and work havoc, and in the past you may have wrecked or wrought havoc. Just don't wreck it. Next, let's talk about the word crescendo. It comes from an Italian word that means increasing. In a musical crescendo, the players gradually get louder or perform with more intensity until they reach a peak. Other things can also crescendo. Political outrage can crescendo. Romantic feelings can crescendo. A flurry of activity can crescendo. And a scene in a play can crescendo, for example. Although it's sometimes used to describe a peak, and the Oxford English Dictionary calls such use colloquial and says it originated in the United States, technically a crescendo is not the peak itself, but rather the lead-up to the peak. 
I've always had trouble remembering how to spell crescendo, since the middle syllable of the word isn't spelled like it's pronounced. It's pronounced like shen, crescendo, but it's spelled S-C-E-N, which, to me at least, looks like it should be pronounced sen. But then I notice that it's spelled like descend, which is something of its opposite in meaning, and that helped me get it right. The crescendo leads to the peak, and then you descend down the other side. The words don't share a root, but I still think of them as this kind of up-and-down pair to remember the spelling. Next, I have a segment by James Carney. If we ever came across aliens, would we be able to understand them? Many scientists believe that alien civilizations exist. For them, the question is now whether we'll encounter them in the near future or a very long time from now, rather than if at all. So let's imagine that we suddenly stand face-to-face with members of an alien species. What would we do first? Surely communicating that we come in peace would be a priority, but would we ever be able to understand each other? The one thing we can be confident about exchanging with aliens is scientific information. If the laws of the universe are the same everywhere, then different descriptions of these laws should, in principle, be equivalent. This is the rationale behind initiatives like the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, SETI, and Messaging Extraterrestrial Intelligence, METI. Matters are more complicated when it comes to language, which is the single most important factor in human cooperation. It is by communicating our intentions that we're able to work together in surprisingly large groups. For this reason, it's plausible that any technologically versatile alien civilization would have something like language. Can we expect to learn such an alien language? The first hurdle would be its medium— Humans communicate in an 85 to 255 hertz frequency range of sound, and in the 430 to 770 terahertz frequency range of light. This is unlikely to be true of aliens who would have evolved differently. Nevertheless, the problem is largely a technical one. Speeded up whale songs that are otherwise inaudible to humans, for instance, show that it's relatively easy to map, quote, alien stimuli into forms that humans can perceive. The more difficult question is whether we would ever be able to learn the internal structure of an alien language. Existing perspectives in the psychology of language give two very different answers. The generativist approach, which holds that the structure of language is hardwired into the brain, suggests this wouldn't be possible. It argues that humans come with an inbuilt universal grammar that has a specific number of settings, each corresponding to the acceptable order in which words and parts of words can be arranged in a given language system. The language we hear in early life activates one of these settings— which then allows us to distinguish between valid and invalid ways of combining words. The key point is that the number of grammars is very limited. Though the rules of human language can and do vary, proponents of the generativist model argue they can only do so within strict parameters. For example, the head directionality parameter determines whether the verbs in a language precede or follow their complements 
with English being head initial, Bob gave a cake to Alice, and Japanese being head final, Bob to Alice a cake gave. For generativists, it's extremely unlikely that an alien species would happen to have the same parameters as human beings. In the words of Noam Chomsky, the leading proponent of this view, quote, If a Martian landed from outer space and spoke a language that violated universal grammar, we simply would not be able to learn that language the way that we can learn a human language, like English or Swahili. We're designed by nature for English, Chinese, and every other possible human language, but we're not designed to learn perfectly usable languages that violate universal grammar, unquote. The cognitive view, on the other hand, sees semantics, structures of meaning, as being more important than syntax, structures of grammar. According to this view, sentences like, quadruplicity drinks procrastination, are syntactically well-formed, but semantically meaningless. For this reason, proponents of the cognitive view argue that grammar alone is not enough to understand language. Instead, it needs to be partnered with knowledge of the concepts that structure how language users think. We can also look at our own world to see how organisms can have striking similarities, even if they've developed in very different ways and in contrasting environments. This is known as convergent evolution. In physical terms, for example, wings and eyes have independently emerged among animals through evolution at several different times over, and birds in ecologically isolated New Zealand have evolved behaviors typically seen in mammals elsewhere. The cognitive view offers hope that human and alien languages might be mutually intelligible. Some argue that even the most advanced human concepts are built up from basic building blocks that are shared across species, such as notions of past and future, similarity and difference, and agent and object. If an alien species manipulates objects, interacts with its peers, and combines concepts, the cognitive approach therefore predicts there might be enough mental architecture in common to make its language accessible to humans. It's implausible, for instance, that an alien species that reproduced biologically would lack concepts for distinguishing between genetically related and unrelated groups. But is the cognitive view correct? Research on neural networks shows that languages could be learned without specialized structures in the brain. This is important because it means there may be no need to postulate an innate universal grammar to explain language acquisition. Also, it seems there may be human languages that don't fit in the universal grammar framework. Though these results are far from conclusive, for instance, they can't explain why humans alone seem to have language, the evidence leans toward the cognitive account. So, it might be reasonable to assume that humans could learn alien languages. Clearly, there would probably always be aspects of an alien language, like our poetry, that are inaccessible. Equally, some species may occupy such a different mental universe that it's only broadly equivalent to that of humans. Nevertheless, I think we can be cautiously optimistic that universal structures in the physical, biological, and social worlds would be enough to anchor human and alien languages in a common semantic framework. 
James Carney is a senior research associate psychology at Lancaster University in the UK, and this segment originally appeared on The Conversation. It's included here through a Creative Commons license. I'm Mignon Fogarty, better known as Grammar Girl. If you have training budget left to spend before the end of the year and you need to know AP Style, think about getting my on-demand advanced AP Style webinar from Reagan.com. You can watch it alone, over and over, or you can sit down at lunch one day and watch it with your whole team. You could probably watch it with your whole team over and over, but somebody would probably object. I'll put the link for it in the show notes, which you should be able to see in the description for this podcast episode. I'll probably also mention it again in my email newsletter, and you can sign up for that by visiting quickanddirtytips.com. And finally, thanks to Madman1311, a high school English teacher who left a great review at Apple Podcasts. That's all. Thanks for listening.